Well, welcome to our discussion of the general prologue to the Canterbury Tales mm. by Chaucer. Written, of course, in the 1380s, probably, thereabout. When's Dante? Dante's writing in the 1320s, so he's writing 60 years, mm. more or less, kind of, mm. after okay. Dante. I've got Dante this afternoon, so it's going to be a 14th century poetry day today for me. And tomorrow's Dante. Oh, tomorrow's Dante, yes. That's right. So, the Canterbury Tales. 1380. 1380, yes. Unique, really, I suppose, in in in, in English literature, in terms of you know medieval poetry. Because in a sense, there's a sense of, in which po- Chaucer is kind of looking forward toward humanism. He learns a lot from Petrarch. Humanism begins much earlier, of course, in Italy than it does in the North. Mm-hmm. These these things take a long time to percolate to the barbarians in, you know, in England. In, yes, <laughs> that <laughs> nook, shot, and aisle, whatever it's called. <laughs> By which I suppose one thing I mean is that its concerns aren't exclusively eschatological, to do with you know the destiny of the soul, which is really what. On the whole, a lot of medieval poetry is it's either it's either folk songs which don't get recorded because vellum is expensive, and so if we have these little folk songs about love and you know they're written in the margins of manuscripts by bored monks. Bless. <laughs> yes. But on the whole, you know, priors didn't grant expensive vellum for frivolous, non-religious texts. Mm. Beowulf being an exception, they snuck it past them. Yeah, it belongs. It's, it's interesting because it's a sort of. I don't want to spend too much on on, on the prologue to the prologue, mm. but it's a it's, it's a kind of variation on a, a very common medieval theme, the the dream poetry, where basically the sleeper goes to sleep. But of course, this is, for example, the beginning of Piers Plowman. Mm-hmm. Um, sleeper goes to sleep and he has a dream and he meets all sorts of allegorical people and this may turn into something like the romance of the rose where the the dream lover must penetrate the garden get past all the guards Mm -hmm. like like um you know disdain and danger and so on Mm -hmm. in order to pluck the rose at the center of the garden (laughs) that kind of thing that kind of thing yeah so what he does is he takes that model but makes it a kind of in the waking world so our poet is if you like um, he bumps into this group of people these pilgrims going off to Canterbury he makes friends with them and he rides with them and oh that's yeah yeah yeah. and takes down their stories and so on so so we expect this range of characters, but these are real people in, in some sense. Instead they're of being emblems, yes, that, that, uh, yeah, yes, you, they're real. They're real, and so he learns by talking and, and, but also they'd have elements of them that are emblematic that I'm assuming are being played with here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. Very interesting. So it's a, pr- a procession. Um, the seven deadly sins. Oh, like seven deadly sins. Yeah. Uh, what's it called? Not a parade. A pageant. Thank, thank yes. you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a sort of pageant. But so it's an awake it's, pageant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a real life pageant. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And there, there were efforts by critics in the past. We, well, I consider it to be stupid 
time wasting efforts to connect these characters with people Chaucer might have known in 14th century London. And, and you know, even if you could, so what? Well, what's the interest there? It's, it's not a literary interest, it's a gossip interest. Yeah. So we won't be doing any of that. Good. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. So what I want to do is I'll go through it in some detail. I'll, I'll be reading it out in Middle English, so you'll probably need a copy of the text in front of you. But we'll also translate it. What a treat, though. And genuinely, I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll also comment on some of the linguistic things that arise, like differences between Middle English and Modern English. Okay. Chaucer himself? Can we do a brief introduction? Chaucer? Well, he's he's, he's comfortably off. um, His family were wine merchants. And he um, took up the business or something? He's yeah, quite a businessman? Sort of, sort of a businessman. I don't think he got his hands too dirty. I yeah. mean, he was, you know... Because he, he, he's a literary man, essentially. He writes lots of poetry and, and, and prose. And a treatise on the astrolabe, for example. Okay. Um, which begins rather endearingly, Little Louis Missoudn. Mm. Cute. <laughs> so, <laughs> He's showing him how to use because the astrolabe was advanced technology. You know, it was it was the supercomputer in the fourteenth century. Mm. It's a it's a way of uh, looking at the heavens through a kind of you know, complicated metal thing. Okay. I, I, cool. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> right. Um, uh, useful, of course, in navigation things like that. So he's he's kind of well connected in a way. I mean, he he. Married well, didn't he? he married she was well. a lady too. Yeah, she well, she she is the she's a relation of John of Gaunt, and John of Gaunt is the most powerful man in England, apart from the king. Huh. Um, Good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And he travelled a lot. He travelled a lot, and sometimes on diplomatic missions. Yeah. So he's not just a merchant, and he certainly went to Italy. Yes. Where he. I, he I, I think he might have met Petrarch or something, but anyway, he, and he certainly knew Italian. Imagine. <laughs> I mean, Italian, French and Italian were the two civilized languages then, and in a sense, not much has changed, does it? <laughs> <laughs> Fighting words, Peter. <laughs> right? Well, English in those days was just confined to little windy, wet, rainy England. And yeah. People didn't learn English on the whole. England didn't have any clout in the world. Yeah, not yet. Not a yet. couple hundred years that's, away. That's to come. Lizzie's but. coming. <laughs> that's right. Although there was a lot of clouting of Frenchies in the in the 14th century during the Hundred Years' War, of course. Oh, of course. Yeah. Which was partly about dynastic succession. The fact that Edward III had a pretty good claim, well, had an excellent claim, through his mother, uh, Isabella the She-Wolf of France, that's great. Yeah, it's a great name, isn't it? Yes. Well, she wasn't her name. It was her subriquet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, to be the, the, the king of France when Charles died. But um, the French nobles weren't having that, and they put a man called Philippe de Valois on the throne. And they claimed the reason for this was that the French Salic law prevented inheritance through the female line. Ah. Yeah. Ah. Which... Well... <laughs> yeah, it, it, that's just a pure fiction, of course. Yeah. But then these things always are, aren't they? <laughs> but the real reason behind the war was, in fact, economic. The French... They, Surprise. Well, I know. <laughs> the French wanted to take back Gascony, and 
the wine sales from Gascony were about 40% of British revenue. <laughs> so <laughs> the English didn't want them to take back Gascony. There you go. And the French invented a pretext, which was that uh, the king, um, Edward, this time, wasn't performing his duties of fealty and, you know, knightly loyalty and obeisance to his feudal overlord, the French king. Ah. And therefore, he had forfeited his lands and they were going to invade and take him over. So, a long bloody struggle of almost a hundred years, or actually slightly over a hundred years, ensued. Oh. With famous battles like Crecy and Poitiers and Hagincourt. Of course. Mm. Right. <laughs> anyway. That's, that's by the by, although it will sort of loom in the background when we come to the night, I suppose. Yeah, sure, that should be relevant. Is Canterbury <coughs> Tales late in Chaucer's poetic career? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so yes. Milton's Paradise Lost. His, yeah. His big That's right, the big effort. The yeah. Big, yeah. Okay. And like Paradise Lost, the most innovative, mm-hmm. modern, up-to-date, uh, much of Chaucer's earlier poetry is more typically medieval, I suppose you could say. Okay. So, yes, the culmination of a career of thinking and working in poetry. Exactly. And what he might do or contribute exactly. or is needed. So, also like the Fairy Queen. Yeah, mm. yeah, that with the yeah. piece, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And like the Fairy Queen, unfinished. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. How much did he plan? Well, he planned uh, two tales going and two tales returning. That's four tales per pilgrim. There are about 30 pilgrims. Jesus. I know. Again, massively ambitious, just not really off the scale. Yeah. Well, when you when you give your uh, your proposal, <laughs> yes, exactly. You, always, you can't say I'm going to look at this one book because no. people say oh, it's just one book. Exactly. And so, then you say oh, I'm going to look at two, and then you start looking at two, and you realise, holy moly! <laughs> it's like every PhD proposal. Yes. Is, you know, wants to wants to you know, have the key to all mythologies. So yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it ain't going to happen. Yeah, that's right. So, so what we have is fragmentary, yeah. as we could say. And it hasn't got a sort of absolute overall arc. And it comes in chunks called fragments. Mm-hmm. And how they fragment it together is an argument of, you know, scholar, it's a scholar. People like to write articles yeah, on that. Oh, yep. they do, yes. And it's the least interesting thing about the whole poem, it seems to me. Yeah, you know, a poem is an experience. Out. It's a cop-out. It is a cop-out, actually. Just like wondering whether, you know, this character or that character relates to so-and-so in, in medieval London. And all we know of this person anyway is, you know, mm. almost nothing. And who cares? And who cares, really? Did he publish it to be sold? Was it... Uh, well, uh, yeah, I suppose. I mean, things don't really work quite like yeah. that in the 14th century. You just had it. <laughs> well, the thing is that books are... So unbelievably so expensive. expensive yeah. Now, it was copied uh, uh, quite a lot. Not as much. <laughs> Do you mind if I can copy your, your Canterbury Tales? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to take it home. <laughs> I mean, there are two major manuscripts called the Hengwit and the Ellesmere. Okay. Uh, and so if you're an editor, you've got to kind of decide which of them is more appropriate. Um, I think the Ellesmere makes much more sense metrically than the Hengwit, but that's just me. And there are but the point is you had to be fairly, very rich to afford, you know, yeah. a monk's time and the vellum and all that for copying a book. That's what printing, 
made such a revolution because books became relatively cheap. Yeah, yeah. It was just unbelievably. We were having a debate the other day, which was bigger, the printing press or the internet. And I still stand by the printing press in so many ways. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I know, you know, the internet is big, but... Without the printing press, we wouldn't have had a Protestant Reformation. And that's rather a big change in Europe. The religion of the book. Mm. Also, propagating ideas. Mm. You see, a lot of the ideas of, 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 of Luther... We're kind of off topic now. We'll mind. be back. It's fine. This is our time. <laughs> <laughs> this is—we're just recording for you guys. You know, <laughs> so you consider yourself lucky. Exactly, but a lot, a lot of a lot of the ideas of Luther—the idea that you know you should only go by the Scripture, sola scriptura, as it's mm-hmm. called, but not the the accumulated wisdom of the Catholic Church, for example—that you know you, you should believe nothing that's not attested somewhere in the Bible. That. Um, confession is problematic the whole sacrament of penance is problematic in various ways and, and, uh, and should be abandoned um, the transubstantiation is a nonsense yeah no, well, I think no, we can all no. agree with that <laughs> <laughs> those ideas are all they all come from the 14th century from a man called Wycliffe, who's a contemporary yes, It's a very yeah. interesting century. Wycliffeites? Yeah, yeah Wycliffeites. Or Lollards, as they were Lollards, called. Lollards, okay. Yeah. In fact, you know, the Act of Parliament in 1401, Parliament passed a law called De Heretico Comburendo. Okay. On the burning of heretics, which was... Ah. Yeah, it was to deal with the Lollards. Right. Know, basically. That's what it was there for. So... The ideas were around. Oh, Luther just thinks about them a bit more, writes them down. Well, the point is that Luther writes them, prints them. Yeah. Pamphlets. Covers Germany in pamphlets. All of a sudden it becomes a mass movement. Yeah. Lollards were never a mass movement. Mm. They were always, you know... Whereas the internet now, everyone's trying to throw pamphlets at everything. Yeah. And nothing sticks. Well, that's right. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, this is the point. It was coming... You go... Yeah. In, into a world that was kind of virgin and waiting for yeah. all this stuff. It, you know, the, the trend to social upheaval was caused by um, by Luther and his ideas. Peasants' revolts and things. Mm. And, you know, the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, mm-hmm. which, of course, Chaucer lived through, but mm-hmm. only there's one brief mention of it in, I think, The Nun's Priest's Tale. Ah, okay. It doesn't go into it. That was led partly by a, a, a Lollard priest called John Ball. Oh, yeah, of course. Right, okay. Mm. Huh. Who famously said, When Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? <laughs> yes. <laughs> In other words, God didn't make yeah. social distinctions. But of course, people did believe that God made social distinctions. That would be important when we yeah. come back to the text. I don't On the think whole, that, that's, that's off topic. This is all relevant. This oh, it's all relevant. <laughs> it's all relevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Another typically medieval thing is to begin with the spring. You know, the world is made in springtime, mm-hmm. uh, for example. That's right, because I was reading The Wasteland to Nick. Oh, right. Or he wanted it to be explained because he saw it in Oppenheimer, and I came out and said, oh, The oh. Wasteland, impo- it's important that he was reading that. And then he said, oh, will you explain it to me? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did that. <laughs> we had a good session on The Wasteland. Oh, they, I should have just sent him to that. <laughs> but anyway, I started and went, huh, that's interesting. Mm. But it's Chaucer. Exactly. Emulated. It's absolutely Chaucer, yeah. Okay. Plus a whole... It's, it's worth noting um, that springtime in England 
is much more marked than it is, say, in, in Victoria. Mm. You know, here it's a, a long process, yeah. it's gradual, there's a bit of a bit of wattle. You get fake spring. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Last yeah. week was fake spring, yeah. <laughs> winter comes back. But in England, you really do transition from a lot of bare trees. There aren't bare trees here, for example. Trees have you know, all year round. A lot of bare trees are suddenly leaf and blossom mm. and warmth in the air and a sudden desire to go out and do stuff you know you want to go out into the garden and do gardeny things (laughs) or whatever yeah stroll in the park um wildflowers spring up yeah snow melts that sort of thing yeah so there really is a sense of transition of going from death to life if i can you know Mm -hmm. in 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 the northern hemisphere well england of course is much farther north than melbourne is south Mm. Melbourne's on the latitude of Rome, roughly, isn't it? So that's worth bearing in mind. So, in other words, what I'm saying is, it's not—it is a literary topos, the mm. spring, and of course, it's connected with ideas of new life and, of course, the Christian Easter new life and, and Easter and all yeah. that. Yeah. But it's not just a literary topos; it's a genuine thing which I experienced the first half of my life. You know, mm. every year. Mm. So. Let us begin at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, one more preface. The meter of this poem is more or less recognisable, I think, as iambic pentameter. Mm -hmm. And what's crazy is that Chaucer invents iambic pentameter. Now, that's... Big deal. A big deal. That's a big deal. It is a big deal. Because iambic pentameter has been the central go-to meter of English verse for the past... Since then. Six, yeah, <laughs> since then. Since then. So Chaucer to Larkin, Philip Larkin or whatever, you know, even later than that. Is anyone still writing? I don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we still have poets today. Oh. Well, <laughs> the Americans have their new formalists who use pentameter. Because it, it, it works so beautifully in English. Yeah. And I won't go into the reasons why, because then that would take till Tuesday. <laughs> but... It's, it's because it, it's a beautiful compromise between the um, formality of meter, the way meter can organize language, make it more kind of intriguing and exciting. Um, Coleridge once described the effect of meter as like wine during a <laughs> meal or the effects of a medicated atmosphere. I'm not quite sure what he's referring to there. But in other words, it's, it does have a slightly consciousness-altering effect, mm. meter. I see. Yeah, and you are put in a meditative state. Sort of, yeah. Something like that. But preserving naturalism. Mm. So it's a compromise between the, the kind of ordering effects of meter, which are you know, aesthetically pleasing and so on, but at the same time remaining naturalistic. Whereas lots of meter, you know, if you think of um, Byron's destruction of Sennacherib, mm-hmm. uh, the Assyrian came down like a wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. There's nothing naturalistic there. No. <laughs> that's chanting. It's not really. It's not speaking. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Yeah. The, the, the Germans have a phrase "Schwachwerts," meaning. Sp- Speaking verse or spoken verse, right? Which is what we have here. Hmm. It's big. 
it's big it's big it's big it's big uh, but of course because it's so new it wasn't understood so his scribes very often fucked it up yeah in the 15th <laughs> century so so fucked up so much because they would read a line like a knich there was not a worthy man which is a pentameter a knich there was not a worthy man and they would reproduce it as their familiar four-beat line a knight there was a worthy man <laughs> from the time he first began so <laughs> <laughs> okay so Chaucer Chaucer's meter was essentially obscured between uh, between the 15th century and the end of the 18th century. And wow. It, in all that time, he survived as a poet, even though people thought he was writing a sort of mad doggerel. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Wow. So it just proves his, you know, that he could shine through that. So the 18th century is when they realized? Yeah, a man called Thomas Tyrrit actually was the first to actually cotton on to this. That, that would have been an important conference mm. paper. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. He's a great man, Thomas. Okay. If you want, I don't know if you want his name, but it's T Y R. I did. W H I double T. T Y R. No, why? 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 T Y R. T Y R. W H I. Double T. Double T. Tom. Tom. Tom 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 Oh, one last point. Sorry. Well, I mean, we are talking about a poet from 700 years ago. There's some gaps that have to be filled. Yeah. Um, I said he invented pentameter. He did. Ah, yes. But he, he basically invented it from a mishearing... This is my favourite bit. ...of Dante. He listened to Dante, and Dante Dante works on the... He uses what's called an endecasyllabo, which is an 11-syllable line, where there's a stress on the fourth or the sixth, and the eighth, and the tenth. And the thing about, because in, in, in Italian, syllables are all roughly equally weighted. They don't, they're known called schwa, you know, in English, unstressed syllables can disappear into little schwa noises. Mm. So if I say, you know, um, give it, second syllable, the, the second give, syllable, just give, give it, it. Yeah, give it, yeah, give it, yeah. Or, or he, um, she lives at the pines. Oh, she, oh, does she live at the pines? Live it. If I say live it like that, in that context, it sounds like rivet. Yeah. Which is just a little schwa noise. Now, Italian doesn't do that. Italian mm. always has these lovely full vowels. <laughs> so, <laughs> the point is that because of that, we will hear every other vowel, because we've got a, a basic pattern of, of um, stresses on three of the even-numbered syllables, we will, as speakers of English, supply prominence on the other even syllables. Uh, and it will sound to our ears like a pentameter. Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita mi ritrovai per una selva oscura che la dritta via era smarita. And so it's not a pentameter, but it's the hallucination of a pentameter Purely for English ears. Beautiful. Mm. Love it. So, I mean, Dante thought he was, Chaucer thought he was writing Dante's meter. The original fanboy. (laughs) 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 Well, no, because Dante himself is the fanboy of Virgil. It just goes back and back and back. If only, you know, Milton prefixed a note on the verse to Paradise Lost, because people were puzzled by the Mm. lack of rhyme. 
Then it's also prefixed a note on the verse. <laughs> he would have had an extra few hundred years of scholarship. <laughs> That's right. So, and we notice, incidentally, the keen-eared among us will notice that the very first line is actually headless. That's oh, a, that's why there's a... Yeah, okay. Yeah. Juan de April with his sure sod, the drucht of merch of persed to the rod, and bathed every vine in such liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the floor. So we're beginning with a, a setting the scene, when April with his sweet... Sort doesn't mean sweet. There's the word suete in Middle English. It, it's remember? you're translating English to me, and this is just fun <laughs> to realise how far we've come. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I know. Well, it's easier to read than yeah. it is, and that's because spelling orthography, as we call it, is much more conservative than speech. Speech changes rapidly; orthography doesn't. Mm. So. Um, for example, the, that GH, we've got lots of GHs we don't sound in English. The drucht of merch, the word is drought in modern English, but we don't speak the GH. It's a ch noise, ah. like in German. Yeah, okay. But we don't utter it anymore. Which is a shame because it's quite a nice noise. <laughs> <laughs> so, let me give you an example um, when we come to it. A knicht there was, and that a oh, worthy man. A knicht. Yeah. Now, the spelling of knight looks crazy. Knight meaning somebody on horseback with a spear, you know. It makes no sense at all. And it, it's, a, it's the despair of foreigners. They think, what, what, what kind of crazy, fuck-witted language is this? Yeah, fair. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, we used to say the k, knicht, knicht. And we used to say the sh. And the E for I is due to what's called the great vowel shift. Oh, the great vowel shift. The great vowel shift. Basically, all the long vowels in English moved up in the mouth one position. And at the top, E is the highest you can go in the mouth, of course. At the very top, they turned into a diphthong, I. And at the back of the mouth, similarly, the very highest you can go is OO. So Middle English OO becomes OW. So you've got un mus, toi mis. So that's how it goes. <laughs> Giving you one mouse, two mice. That's how it happens. Nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the short vowels stay the same, roughly. They stay in. They stay put. In fact. Since the time of King Alfred, they haven't really moved much. I'm so excited that when Sylvie asks me why it's one my mouse and two mice, yes. I will have the answer. No, that's right. <laughs> they didn't have the answer for me in school. <laughs> they just said, that's the way it is. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, look, I tell you what, I would say anything more about the Great Valshift just at present, but you'll see, see what we mean. Basically, the difference is, of course, that there were two air sounds in... in Old and Middle English, which have coalesced into one. Okay. So there was an open. If we spell it with an ea, like meat, meaning you know, pheasant pate. Yeah. Is that meat? I yeah, yeah. Meat and then meat. A meat meaning greet, meat and greet. If it's ea, it's an open a. If it's two e's, it's a closed e. e. So e a e a. Now. 
English people find it hard to distinguish them because we don't distinguish them in modern English. Huh. Do it in French. Mm-hmm. If you know your French, e acute is, is close e, e grave is open e, e per. Okay. And so basically, words with both e and e became e. So both met and mit became meat. And that's why we have homonyms. Homophones. Homophones, thank you. But we spell them differently because of the history. Bloody hell. So that's right, yeah. Now, there was a pair, I mentioned this before, I think, but not not obviously in this podcast, um, which was Quinn and Quen. Quinn, Mm. Q U, we've spelled it two E's, meant female monarch. Mm. Quen meant Mm. prostitute. Mm. And they were distinct in Middle English, no problem. But they fell together by the time roughly about Shakespeare. Mm, Funny that. (laughs) Almost as if (laughs) God-given. So that produced what's called an intolerable homophonic clash. And what did they do about it? Well, they dropped one. And they dropped queer. So we no longer use queen in the sense of prostitute. Oh, that's funny. But the fact that it's come back now and, like, you know, the gays have, have reclaimed it. Well, you know, no, queens. no, no. No, but that's double E. That's, that's the okay. old word queen. I'm going to tell them, though. <laughs> <laughs> they should go and reclaim it properly. But that would be queer. Well, it would be queer in the Middle English, but um, we don't. Wow. Good. Yeah. So one, one had to go, basically, because... There can't be any doubt whether you're addressing mm. the Queen as Queen mm. or Queen. <laughs> she should have had a better sense of humour. <laughs> okay. Incidentally, inc- sorry, you can tell that the Great Vowel Shift hadn't quite finished its progress in Shakespeare's day because Shakespeare still uses EA, Queen, as a distinct. That's why the spelling is weird. Yeah, well, that's it. It's open E. Yeah. Air. It's all logical, you see, ultimately. I know. English, English spe- looks like a, the dog's breakfast. Yes. It's a hot mess. But it, it's because it's preserved its history. It's a product of history. It's because it's such, because it's got such a long history. If you look at so many European languages, like, you know, Portuguese or German or whatever, their writing doesn't really take off until the 16th, 17th right. centuries. English has a poetry tradition that goes back to Beowulf. In the, yes, in the, in the something like the seventh century. So English, it's bound to be a bit of a hot mess because mm. it's a beautiful hot mess. I'm very oh yeah, it's I'm lovely. Very excited. It's lovely, but it must be a uh, well, a real nuisance for foreigners. Yeah, well, <laughs> get good, son. <laughs> Sorry. So we begin then with this abrupt, but it's kind of buttonholing, having a. Dropping that first offbeat, one mm. at April with his surest sort, is lovely. The, the word sort, as I say, it, it, it's the same word that Keats revives. Remember, he has jellies soother than the creamy curd. Wow. That's a yeah. line from, um, mm. excuse me, uh, Eves and Tangus. Ah, oh, right. It's, you know, it's, it's Porfirio. Porfirio? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, his midnight feast he prepares for. Yeah. Which is accompanied by a midnight surprise. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> um, and we still use it in the word soothe, don't we? You soothe the baby. Yeah. Mm. Huh. With sweetness, I guess. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. So, April piercing to the root the drought of March. 
And, and it's still true to some extent that April is a wet month in, in, in England. Um, it's a sign of new life, you know. Mm. Okay. April showers bring Mayflowers is an old saying. Mm. So Elliot saying April is the cruelest month really would have stood out. Oh, well, but yeah, but he didn't, what, what he's saying is that new life yeah. is horrible yeah. and oppressive. I want my cosy yeah. half death. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to explain to your uh, partner with no literary background. Ah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And bathed every every vein, every 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 you know sap bearing thing in the plant in switch liqueur. um, Such our modern reflex. The reflex is a modern version of an ancient word. Mm. What it's turned into. Our reflex, obviously, is liquor, mm-hmm. um, but it means more than it means precious fluid, ointment, something life-giving, something special. Okay. The good. You notice the way um, a lot of these words have end stress. They're oxytonic. Okay. Ah, yes, in yes, yes. English, they are paroxytonic. They're stressed on the penult, and the reason is that Germanic words are naturally stressed on the penult. French words are naturally stressed on the last syllable. And so these words are borrowings from French. This is what makes this so different from Old English. It's full of these borrowings, Mm -hmm. like vertu and liqueur, courage. And they are hesitating between the two. Mm. And eventually they get taken over, so liquor becomes liquor. Although we still say liqueur, don't we? Mm. Spilling it differently. Interesting. Mm. But you can see it in a more recent borrowing. This, this, this uh, hesitation between full stress and end stress. Mm. How, how, do you, how, how would you speak of the traditional domicile of your car or motor vehicle? Domicile. Well, <laughs> the place you put it. Oh, um, carport. Well, okay, but suppose it's enclosed. Suppose it's enclosed with doors and garage. Good. Is that American though? Well, uh. look, it's it's up for grabs because the point is the French is garage. Ah, okay. Which is end stressed naturally, as right. just as the French courage. Is in stress. Okay, following. But since we borrowed courage in Chaucer's day, it's now courage, for stressed, in the oh, Germanic mode. Courage. But garage, people say garage or they say garage. Hmm. It's a bit, it's a bit sort of poncy to say garage. Is it? Garage. Well, no, 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 no not poncy. <laughs> what I mean is, it, is it would be looked Sounds upon American by people me. who say garage, which is totally naturalized. Okay. They would see garage as oh. rather middle class. Um, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I say target, not target. <laughs> <laughs> so, the interesting thing is then that Chaucer can exploit this. So, for the meter, he can have either version. Mm. He can have liqueur or liqueur. That's fun. Yeah, it's, it's a sort of extra little thing he can he can draw upon there. Of which virtu engendered is the floor, by virtue of which. Mm-hmm. Now, virtue is a word that keeps coming up, but 
it's the first time it's come up in, in this discussion, so we'll just briefly mention it. It comes from the Latin word virtus, meaning manliness. Mm -hmm. And so the word virtue means force or strength or power. Mm. You could say this battery this battery has no virtue in it. For Machiavelli, the point about politics is virtu, as he calls it, meaning force, getting things done. Mm. And it, it acquires its moral meaning from the idea that virtue requires a strenuous wrestling with desire, with wrong desire. Mm. There's no virtue not doing what you're not tempted to do anyway. Yeah, if that's you don't like chocolate cake and there's chocolate cake yes. in the fridge and you don't eat it, yeah. that, that's, that's not... no virtue. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to wrestle. But if you really like chocolate cake... <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So by the strength, the power of which the flower is brought into being. So this is emphasis on creation, on this life-giving energy coursing through nature, hmm. which, as I say, is part of one's experience of spring in the Northern Hemisphere, mm -hmm. or just in the north parts of the Northern Hemisphere. Juan Zephyrus ache with his sweat of breath. Now, interestingly, if you think of how we spell breath in modern English, we use an E-A. So that phrase, sweat of breath, um, early on, look, we won't do this in this detail <laughs> yeah, but I just want to draw attention to some of these linguistic differences because they're interesting, mm -hmm. and they're fun. Um, so, sweater is a close E, E, and breath is an open E. Now, you, you try saying sweater breath. Sweater breath. Good. Yeah. Yes, excellent. Sweater breath. <laughs> <laughs> um, Zephyrus, of course, is the west wind, the soft west mm -hmm. wind. Ek just means also, um, if you eke out your, you know, you eke out your pension with selling your body to sailors or something, that's the same idea, you make it bigger, eke. Mm -hmm. So ek means also, add on. Uh, probably no point in this, but I just found it interesting when I was reading through how much of like you'd be puzzled by a word but it was almost intuitive like you'd figure mm. it out now I know some of that is context but also I guess yeah. our understanding of English is so yeah. mushy well. <laughs> that you can sort of piece it together which I thought was cool yeah 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 um, and one last point worth noticing is swear to breath um, we say swear to when we have a definite adjective here. For example, one preceded by the, the sweater breath, as opposed to indefinite. We, pe they still do this in German. They inflect the, the definite one, but not the indefinite one. So it would be a sweat breath, but the sweater breath. Huh. We also inflect adjectives, monosyllabic adjectives, for, for number. So a young, a young a younger lad, younger ladders, plural. Oh. Again, we don't do that in modern English. And the reason is, I mean, just after Chaucer basically turned up his toes, these little schwa endings were beginning to disappear. Because what happens is every generation, like Sylvie, mm -hmm. they don't 
receive language like, say, the rules of chess. You know? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. They invent the rules of language partly because of their own internalized ability to do so based on the evidence of your speech. Mm. The mother tongue really means something, you know. Shit. <laughs> I know. <laughs> she, she heard Chomsky read to her last night. What's going to happen next? Well, there we are. Mm. There we are. These are Chomsky and ideas. Mm. Um, and so, inevitably, there's language change because you recreate language according to your understanding of it. And if those little schwas get weaker and weaker and weaker, mm. you're not going to hear them. Yeah. And so you'll start speaking English without inflected adjectives, which is what really happened in the 15th century. That's why chalk, Shakespeare's adjectives are never inflected. Wow. Spencer sometimes does that, but it's a deliberate archaic. Yeah, yeah. So, Zephyrus with his sweet breath, in speared it hath in every halt and hath. A halt is a wood and hath is open ground. In breathed into, in speared, the tendra croppers. Um, tendra croppers, croppers are shoots. Mm -hmm. So again, it's this lovely sort of idea of green springing newness pervading all this. And the younger sun, you see the younger sun, it's definite, so the, so it's younger sun. If it were a young sun, it, there would be no, mm. wow. no, no inflection. Hath in the ram is half kursi run. Now, you'll notice that it really should be halva kursi run, because his is definite and also for the meter. We generally print half. Have you got half? I've got half. Yeah. That's because Hengwood has half. But I think Ellesmere has halva. Okay. Um, so if I were editing Chaucer, I would probably have halva there. Because both meter and grammar point to it. You know, when meter and grammar are singing from the same hymn sheet. Mm -hmm. Listen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm. So, and also it sounds better, doesn't it? Hathen the ram is halva kursi run. In the ram, Aries, he's thinking, I mean, you know, for someone like Chaucer, living in a Ptolemaic universe, a static earth, everything revolving around oh, it. So different. It's so different, utterly different. You, it's a place where you kind of feel at home, you know, you look into it, you're not alienated by the night sky, you're looking into this cathedral of light that leads up into a god. Um, it's, you know, a, a, a kind yeah. of... Because everything would make sense. Yeah, everything makes sense. And the, the the universe is a vast celestial clockwork. Yeah. So of course you measure time by reference to There'd be no the negative capability. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. Mm. No. That's right. Mm. That's right. Um oh, my watch is telling me to stand up. Piss off watch. <laughs> To be nagged and patronised by your watch. Well done, it says. <laughs> it's really beneath human dignity. And and look at this lovely line here. You can see, by the way, Smala is got a, got a schwa on the end because Smala fools. Well, because fools is plural, isn't it? Ah, oh, okay, right. Sorry, yes. And Smala fools mark and melody. Isn't that a gorgeous line? 
small birds make melody doesn't really but the, the music of it doesn't get the music small of hula's and melody so it's a melodious line for the for the lovely bird song that sleep and all the night with open ear that sleep Slepen is the plural of the verb. Again, the, bird, the verbs inflect a bit more in Middle English than they do in Modern English. Slepen all the nicht with open ear. Now, interestingly, there are irregularities in language mm -hmm. that doesn't make any sense. Um, the reason is that regular sound changes produce irregular grammatical forms. And let me explain. Please. So, so the word slep the word slip is perfectly regular in Middle English. He slept, he slepeth, he slept. Now in Modern English it's not. He sleeps, he slept, we say, to the confusion again of foreign learners. It's irregular. Yeah. Why is it irregular? Well, because a regular sound change in Middle English shortened vowels before two consonants. So that so slept passed became slipped. Mm -hmm. And that persisted into modern English. But it didn't shorten the long vowel of slepen because it's not before two consonants. So that remains long. Sleeps. And so we end up with an irregularity which is being produced by regular sound laws operating upon regular grammatical forms. They produce irregularity. <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. Yes. We're having fun. We're having fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, know, you, you can look at English as a sort of tangled mess, as you say, a hot mess. Mm. Or you can try to understand why it got the way it did. Mm. And it makes much more, it's much more interesting. Oh, yes. Why it got the way it is. So, so pricketham nature nicorages. Um, so nature pricks them in their their wills, their dispositions, courage, of course, from the French word cœur, meaning heart. Heart, yeah. Desires. Now, to prick them means mm. to, like, to goad them. Like, you, you prick an ox with a goad to make it move. Nature is pricking them on. And I fear there's an indelicate pun here. Mm. Because... A gentle knight was pricking on the plane. A knight was pricking on the plane, yep. Very first line of the Fairy Queen. So, what he's saying is that this urge we feel within ourselves is at least partly, obviously, sexual. Because it's about new, new life. life. The and rabbits, they're out. The rabbits April. are doing it. April. You know? <laughs> We're <It's going>. right. <laughs> the small gilded fly doth lecher in my sight. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> That's why we have rabbits at Easter, you know? That's right? why we have the rabbits eggs. at Easter, yeah. Because it's new life. Yeah. That's exactly right. I don't know if bilbies do the same. No. 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 So they don't really work, do they? But it's good chocolate. <laughs> also, there is, there's no shortage of rabbits in Australia. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to some imbecile in the 1820s who thought it would be a good idea to introduce them. Yeah, that mm. worked out well. <laughs> exactly. So, do you know they've speciated? Really? Yeah, the screaming rabbit is now a distinct species. Damn. Mm. It can't mate with European rabbits anymore. They've tried. <laughs> I like that someone out there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, nature. Nature 
Brixham in their colleges. And then look at this lovely next line. Van, then that is Longenfolk. Yes. Longen. Longen, they long. People long. Folk is just folk. Mm. Lost its L, of course. L's after vowels tend to disappear, like walk, talk, forken. We talked about this the other day. Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> People long. And you think, what do they long for? Longenfolk? To go on pilgrimages. <laughs> That's a hell of a surprise. <laughs> you think, what? And then you begin to realise what he's kind of saying is that these sort of urges, this urge to get out of doors, to do something, to see new things, mm. you know, like post-COVID, going for walks. Oh, yes. Um, it's complicated, and it's partly sexual, mm-hmm. but in, in almost in that grander sense of, you know, nature wanting the, the, you know, the continuation of the species, but it's also partly spiritual. Mm. And you can't really disentangle them entirely. And he hasn't, yeah. yeah. He gives us all. He gives it, us nature. It's all there. He has they're the not, sexual implications. He complicates it. Yeah, they're not in purely the saintly people. Like me, people go to conferences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have a different experience than me, but carry on. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I go for the wine. <laughs> the wine, the intellectual stimulation, stimulation, but also you know people are as in a pilgrimage. Away from their family. Horny. Well, <laughs> horny, yes. That's right. The conference is the modern version of a pilgrimage. Except you don't go there on a, on a donkey or a mule or something. You, 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 you jump on a jet plane. Which is a shame. Well, well sort of a shame. <laughs> I suppose taking a donkey to, to Sydney for the Shakespeare conference would be... Yeah, watch out for Peter in Sydney first. <laughs> He's on the look. <laughs> I'll take it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, read read um, David Lodge's book. Oh yes, Small World. It's coming up. So, so it's a wonderful. It's not an anticlimax exactly, but it's a slight surprise. But then you realise surprise makes sense. Mm. That pe- com- human beings are complex creatures who are driven by all sorts of different impulses, and so different from the sort of. You know, cardboard cutouts of the dream vision where you, you just talk to despair or you, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. These are real people. And of course, Chaucer does, uh, Spencer does that too to some extent, doesn't he? I mean, oh, yeah. He's, he's never deals in pure abstractions except in those things like the procession of seven deadly sins. Mm. But, when you, when, but despair, despair is kind of like a real human being in some oh, ways. Oh, yes. He keeps coming back. Yeah. yeah. And palmers for to second stranger strondus. But a palmer is a pilgrim, technically one who's been to Jerusalem. Yeah. So he's got a palm on, on Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday. So he can wear a palm leaf. Good for him. Yeah. Mm. I mean, why you'd want to, I don't know. But, um, the Christian equivalent of an, a Victorian cross. <laughs> yeah. An AOM. <laughs> but look at what the palmer wants to do. He doesn't want to go and show his, you know, duty to God or his worship of so-and-so. Mm. He's seeking strange beaches, str- or shores. Strand is a, is a shore. Ah, so curious. Yeah, or strange. Strange also means foreign, of course. But yeah, he, he, he wants to be a tourist. Yeah. You know? Which would have been part of the compulsion. 
Yes. And they would have found a way to make it seem like religious salvation. But yeah. Of course. But, yeah. but it's part of it. it, it that's, a, that's the point. It's a complex thing. Yeah. Now, the thing with a modern tourist is it's very rarely... <laughs> you don't go to Mykonos for your soul. <laughs> no, it's just, there's a little spiritual component in the... Yeah. Well, you know, people do. They go to Rome and they marvel at you know, 3,000 years of architecture and all that kind of stuff, mm. I suppose, to some extent. But they also go to Ibiza and get, you know, absolutely get wasted. And, yeah, yeah, get wasted <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, there are tourists and tourists. <laughs> Kentucky versus, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. But 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 that's that's it. You know, to seek foreign shores. And I guess the point is the nights. You know, you you sign up for for military service for the same reason. You want to travel. You want to see new worlds. Mm. But then you you've got a night. You've got a palm. A different focuses and how and why they want to see those new worlds. So, yeah. like you say, it's complicated. It's it wasn't complicated. just yeah. curiosity. There's a particular kind. Yes, yeah, okay. exactly, exactly. And, you know, curiosity is frowned on in the Middle Ages. Curiositas, yeah. a lust of the eyes. But, on the other hand, it's a fundamental driving human process. We would die without it. Yeah. You have to want to know if there's berries around the bend. I know, I know. <laughs> and will that saber-toothed tiger bite? Yeah, will this mushroom kill me? Can, can I pat your saber-toothed tiger <laughs> on the head? <laughs> yep. Um, incidentally, a lovely example of the abuse of Gricean implicatia. Oh, yes. Maybe we should cut this out because they, <laughs> we haven't talked about Gricean implicatia. But there's, there's a, a Clouseau film. Okay. Uh, I forget which one. Then. And... Um, He's checking into a hotel and there's a dog there. And he says, does your dog bite? And the hotelier says, no, monsieur, my dog does not bite. So he pats the dog and it bites him. And he says, I thought you said your dog did not bite. And the hotelier says, that is not my dog, monsieur. (laughs) (laughs) What makes that funny is that he is not playing the game of grace and implicacy because... Clouseau's question is irrelevant unless he is under the belief that this is the hotel he has done. Yeah, that's fun. Hmm. I love that. <laughs> it's a good example to use when teaching Gricean implicative. I trust you mentioning it to your students. Uh, if I thought they could handle it, I would. But we'll build. We'll build. <laughs> okay. Nice coffee. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, to Ferna Halwiz coast in sundry londres so to fill the hallows a hallows is a how is a hallows so all hallows saint yeah distant shrines i've got yeah di- further means distant it, there's no cognate in modern english unless you know you're german i do not oh that's a shame actually <laughs> <laughs> i'm found wanting once again <laughs> no, 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 no 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 but you're like casabon there you see <laughs> Don't you dare <laughs> liken me to that dry gonad. <laughs> um, but, but in German, there means actually, actually, there is a cognate. Of course, there is far. Oh, okay. Far is a modern. I did wonder. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe not. Far is a modern reflex of it, isn't it? How ah. stupid on me. Yeah. Um, What's the German? Well, Fern. Oh. A, a German a television, for example, in German is Fernsehen. Oh. Far seeing. There are literal people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and specially from every sheer's end. 
especially for every shire's end. A shire is just a, a county in England. County is French, of course, comté. Shire is good English. Ah. English is full of these, because of the Middle Ages, because of the Norman Conquest, of these pairings of terms. <laughs> We're not French. <laughs> That's right. Like brave and courageous. Brave is... Uh, yeah. Mm. It's, uh, mm. Anyway. <clears throat> or kingly and regal. Or kingly and royal, I should say, because regal is Latin. So we've got kingly, English... Royal, French, Regal, Latin. And they all have different flavours, don't they? Yeah, they're not they're quite not synonyms. No. But they were created to be as such. Well, yeah, but it means that English has this wonderful richness. That's why it's such a good language of poetry. Yeah. It's so connotative. It's, uh, yeah. yeah, exactly so. From every shire's end of England to Canterbury, thy wind. They go to Canterbury. From Can Canterbury, of course, is in the bottom. In the very bottom corner. right yeah. corner. Tucked away. <laughs> Tucked away. Um, but the first part of England to be Christianized, notice me by, by um, St. Augustine. Hmm. Not Augustine of Hippo, of course. Okay, I was no. confused, yeah. No, just the, the chap who was not the first kind of missionary to England. Um, Notice they wend, they go. Yeah. Now in English... We keep it a bit, they wend their way. Well, yeah, but you wouldn't say, I'm, I'm wending into town now for some... No, no. people would punch me, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, but we keep the past tense, and we stick it on... They the, went. They went. Crazy. So Peter I enjoys this far too much. He likes the faces I make. <laughs> <laughs> I go, I went. If you, if you... I, yeah, I, I went, I go. Uh, I, I went, went, I, I went. went, I went. Yes, I go, I goed. But we don't use goed and we don't use wend. And people would say it was bad grammar if you said it, but you're just putting together the rules that English said fuck you to. Yes, that's right. And these things, if you want a, a useless word for them, are called suppletive verbs. Right. Mm. <coughs> yes. There aren't that many of them. I mean, to be is suppletive, of course. You take you, the be, I'm am, was, were. Uh, there's three different sources for, mm. for, the, for the word. Why these things? I, I can't explain why suppletive verbs happen. It's a, it's a puzzle. I don't have an explanation. They just happen. Because <laughs> people are perverse. <laughs> The holy blissful martyrfortusek. Holy blissful full of happiness in a sense, but bringing you to happiness. Bliss often has a reference to Orgasm. the afterlife to uh, what? Orgasm? Well yeah, yeah. It does that. <laughs> See, too. I've had too much Spencer, he makes language naughty. <laughs> yeah. But 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 well it, I, I think it's here too, probably. Because mm. you know. It's heaven, a natural bliss. comparison. Heaven, bliss. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Um, for to seek, to seek, that him have holpen when that I was sick. Incidentally, that's what we call reem rich or which rhyme, because the words are ah, phonologically identical. 
And in, in modern English, we don't like Rim Rish. No, it's find, a bit yeah. on the nose, isn't it? Yeah. So this, this saint is St. Thomas of Becket. Ah, of course. Yes. Who was, of course, martyred by the four knights in, on December the 27th of 1170. Subject of a, a famous play by T.S. Eliot called Murder in the Cathedral. Oh, it's, it's actually it's worth, it's worth looking at. It's, so he was killed actually inside the cathedral, which seemed particularly kind of horrible to medieval, the medieval mind. Yes. Um, Take him outside. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. This is uh, famously Henry II said, Will nobody rid me of this turbulent priest? And four knights got up and rode off. And, ah. But then he has plausible deniability. He said, Look, I never actually told you to kill him. <laughs> very politically appropriate. But he, he, was, he was a hugely popular saint. He was supposed to help you in sickness, as that ah. suggests. You prayed to him. And in about 1400, which is actually just after after this, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, a few years later, a visitor to Canterbury Cathedral, he found, I think, sixpence on the altar to God, a shilling. I mean, there's still much more money than a shilling nowadays, but... Mm. And something like 1,500 quid on the altar to... <laughs> to St. Thomas because you know you're a peasant yeah with, with your pittance I am mm -hmm. mm. you bring your pittance along you're not going to try to talk to God because God is too he's not listen is he no. so he's too busy doing godly things <laughs> too big too big Christ yeah. he's a bit closer you can whisper in his ear maybe but much better and exactly the same you're talking to the king you wouldn't try to talk to the king mm. or the king's son but you might talk to a courtier who could talk to the king mm and put your case um, and far more like we you can empathize you can see them as yes, human you can understand yes, them they feel exactly. like they understand you i mean it's how human brains work right it's how so human brains work of course it makes sense so so you you, you give your money to your bribe <laughs> to St. thomas, thomas. Mm. and he'll he'll talk to the, the big man hopefully <laughs> on your behalf <laughs> on yeah. your behalf yes so so in other words Medieval spirituality here and medieval politics mirror each other rather nicely. Mm. <laughs> so that's the that's the proem, the exordium. Oh, okay. And then we we descend from exordium into narrative. Befell, it happened. It chanced. It befell. Which I think here probably does mean it befell. In Spencer, it always means providence was. Ah. Well, look. I think we have to take it at face value if there's you know, no reason not to. <laughs> the field didn't that soon on a die, one day in that season of the year, in Southwark at the Tabard does he lie. So Southwark is now Southwark, mm -hmm. just south of the river, mm -hmm. um, which in Shakespeare's day was a very louche area. Mm -hmm. It's where you went to play up. Exactly. Prostitutes, bear baiting, watching plays. Mm. Anything, <laughs> yes, anything that the, the Puritan city fathers would like to frown on because it's out of their jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. It's outside the city of London. Um, and as we've said, um, in, those, in Shakespeare's day, One the Bishop bridge. of Winchester owned all the brothels. <laughs> 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 Very lucrative. 
since the beginning of time. All to the glory of God. Well, it's a bit like Bulstrode, you know, his, his swindle. Sorry, yep, with you. <laughs> his swindle is all for the glory of God, mm. so it's okay. And it's the oldest. Yeah. I remember being taken to Pompeii at 11. And, and mum oh, yeah. then showing me the, you know, this was the bakery and this was a brothel. Do you know what a brothel is, Alice? No, I don't know what a brothel is. <laughs> being told what a brothel is and then being told it was as old as making bread. It was the two <laughs> professions. <laughs> Brothels and bread. <laughs> she should have said a place where you can get a nice bowl of broth to go with your bread. <laughs> Mate. <laughs> Maybe I don't know what broth was. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. That's right. So prostitutes in Shakespeare's day are called Winchester geese. The ways you can insult someone nowadays if you know enough history. Oh, yes. <laughs> she was a bit of a Winchester goose. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Doesn't have the same ring as sex work. <laughs> now, a tabard, of course, is a sort of cloak, a kind of heraldic cloak. Yep. Got maybe your lord's um, heraldry on it. Mm-hmm. But there was an inn called the tabard. In, okay. So, you know, it's... He's not, he's not in fantasy land here. That's um, what makes it so modern. Yeah. Is, yeah. Yeah. yeah well. And it, it takes you close to the, the Canterbury Road. So it's a natural place. If you're setting out early in the morning on your trek to Canterbury. I am. Yeah, exactly. Then you'll stay at the tabard. Yeah. Very natural. Okay. Like if you're going north, you stop at the, the Maccas on the yeah. bit colder. Yes, <laughs> yeah. that's right. Exactly. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so... Mm. So it's no surprise that he meets all these people here. You know, there's nothing, nothing weird or coincidental here. In Thuwerk at the Tabard does he lie, ready to wend on the pilgrimage to Canterbury, with full devout courage. Full, full just means very mm-hmm. devout, a devout will, devout because you're going on a pilgrimage, you're going off to... Yeah. Uh, Canterbury, of course, I mean, it's, it is now very much a tourist town. You've been to Canterbury? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> People selling trinkets and whatever. And, but, of course, it was exactly the case with tourist, with, with pilgrim centres in the Middle Ages. So it's always been oh, it's a always tourist been centre. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and people selling you um, souvenirs, mm. you know, a souvenir of your trip to Canterbury. Mm. Stick it on the wall. A useless little trinket. Mm. There were all sorts of... <laughs> You know um, uh, Gutenberg? Yeah. Before he took up the printing press, he tried various kind of schemes, money-making schemes. Printing press was a good one, except <laughs> except he was swindled out of it yeah. because he wasn't a good businessman. Um, it's a shame. But he had one scheme where he went to a, a pilgrim site in Germany and he, he invented this special box with a mirror in it and a lid, with, on, like a selfie stick. It was on a sort of, you know... Because sometimes you couldn't get close to the shrine because so, you so had to. many. Yeah, but ah. what you did was you opened up your box and you caught an image, like by taking a photo, yeah. an image of the so and so. You snap the thing shut and you've trapped the image in this box, the holy image, and you can take the holy image home <laughs> and stick it on the mantelpiece. <laughs> So it's like a camera that doesn't... That is good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would get people today. <laughs> well, that's right. Because well, yeah, mirrors are mysterious things, aren't they? Yeah. Um, and they, would they have had clear mirrors yet? Or is it still... Um, they were getting better. 
<laughs> the development of the mirror. <laughs> a thesis. That's right. Um. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so all sorts of stuff. And, of course, food, just everything. <laughs> Get your hot dogs. Get your, yeah, well, pies. Well, um, <laughs> yeah. One, one of the characters, the cook in here, Mania Jack of Dover had he sold her that had been Tweus Foot and Tweus Cold. <laughs> Humans don't change. No. The language does, but we do not. No, we don't. We don't. So, at nicht was come into that hostelry. At night, came into the hostelry, well, nine and twenty in a company of sundry folk. So, twenty, nine and twenty, twenty-nine, People used to say things like 9 and 20 right up. You know, it's normal in Jane Austen, isn't it? Mm. Um, yeah, she's 4 and 20 years. Yeah, yeah that's right. Mm. It's only in the 19th century that we went. And of course, they still do that in German. Mm. 29. 9 and 20. Mm. I don't know why we stopped doing it. Because it makes more sense to say 24. Well, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> Even in Austen, it's more of an f- emphatic thing, isn't it? You wouldn't say, oh, I have 24 geese. You'd I, I'm four and twenty geese, but you say I am four and twenty. Yes, well, that's how it's in the ages, isn't it? Because I think at one point Knightley says, Mr. Knightley says, depend upon it, a man of a man of six and twenty may be allowed to choose his own wife or something like that. Mm. Mm. Yes, but you probably wouldn't say, yeah. They have an army of. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Um, so. In a company now, there aren't actually nine and twenty pilgrims. And in fact, exactly how many pilgrims there are is another source of lively scholarly debate, because sometimes he says, you know, um, she, he talks about the prioress and, and pressed is three, three priests. Who uh, do we count three priests? Who the fuck cares? Well, yeah, well, I know, uh, I know, I know. Sorry, this is an unfinished work. <laughs> With messy, tidy, loot, tidy, untidy bits and pieces. We're lucky we even have it. I Why know. are you asking these questions, I know. people? I know. I mean, at one point, is well, I won't go into it, but there's there's a chunk which ought to go in place A, but it clearly looks as though he meant it to go in place B. Because people want to debate about. Yeah, because he hadn't decided what the final structure of the thing was. <laughs> so that's what you expect, you know. You don't argue about it. Well, it's really place A. Yeah, okay. There's mm. a lot of crazy scholarship in the past on the Canterbury Tales, I have to tell you that. Right. Best ignored. Okay. Don't waste your time. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> and lots of attempts to resist a kind of sensible reading of what he's writing, which is basically that it's mainly satire. Because yeah. <laughs> somehow satire is unrespectable. Gentlemen don't satirise nuns, you know, mm. or something like that. Well, I, had it been I, picked up? Yeah, had it. Um, I guess as a as an understood mode as much. Yeah, it was used. Yeah. No, it's it's just bonkers, 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 bonkers. So you can safely ignore it. Okay. <laughs> so into that hostelry, nine twenty of Sundry Fog. The Aventuri fell in fellowship, just by, by chance, you know. And it makes sense, they're all going the same way. So they've made a kind of... I mean, if you're travelling, it's safer to travel in a party. Yep, um, mercenaries and... 
tigers and bears and whatnot? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. You know, footpads, all that kind of thing. Footpad? No. Um, mugger. A sort of mugger. A sort of. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Perhaps it's an old-fashioned word. Footpad. A footpad probably is, isn't it? Sir, you're a footpad, and your wife is a Winchester goose. <laughs> it sounds like you're in a, um, a Beckett play. <laughs> okay. Um, towards Canterbury, Walden Reed. They wanted to go towards Canterbury. It's all clear as a bell. All pilgrims. The chambers and the stablers were in weed, so the chambers and the stables were spacious. And well, we were an Aesid at the best, and we were put up in this inn in the best manner. Mm-hmm. So, now, you'll notice um, a, a feature of the narrator, because that the, the exordium doesn't really have a narrator, does it? It's kind of... That's Chaucer. Yes, yeah, Chaucer. But the pilgrim, Chaucer, mm-hmm. becomes the narrator, starting at Befeldet and that season, and... You'll find that he's impressed with everything. He's. I mean, if you were a peasant from a small village, you know, just milking your cows and mm. carrying on ever, and you came to London or mm. Canterbury, of course you'd be impressed. Mm. Wordsworth's impressed, isn't he? Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And the whole. I mean, you know, think of a cathedral. Yeah. You're used to your hovel for a pitched. Are you, it's this magnificent, enormous, but they're, they're hugely impressive now. Yeah. With these amazing coloured stained glass yeah. windows letting in the, the glorious light. Mm. You know, it's designed to make you feel small and, and you know, to need God. Mm. To need it? God is the way to put it. <laughs> That's right. Um, so this pilgrim is wide eyed and naive, takes everything at face value. And thinks everybody he meets is the best thing since sliced bread. And this is a perfect satirical device because what it means is that we are forced then to discriminate. Because mm. some of these people are worth the praise he gives them, a very few of them. Most of them absolutely aren't. And so we have to, he's, he becomes an unreliable narrator. It's a very early occurrence of the unreliable narrator. Although we find this also in, 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 in Dante which is where he got the idea I think because Dante the the, 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 the sojourner in hell yeah. the, the, the dissonance between the Dante is, the pilgrim and Dante the poet yes he uses here he uses he's here he's like well I'll he be Chaucer the pilgrim and Chaucer that's an interesting method yeah I, I could use that yeah and at a time where people read more purposefully carefully mm. you know People, students often ask, well, how did they pick up on that? Because they were reading consciously yes. rather than just reading with one eye on their phone is exactly. the difference, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's, that's very much true. I mean, you know, it explains why, you know, Dante can count on you looking for four levels of allegory and that kind of thing. Yeah, because you're reading slowly, you're reading purposely, yes, consciously, the way you would read the Bible, you're thinking and reflecting. Yes. And we and don't and read and like that anymore. No, 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 no. <laughs> that's exactly right. It's really hard to explain to students and get them to emulate. Yeah. So if you're out there, emulate. Emulate, yes. <laughs> Everything that is written is written for our edification. Ooh. Mm. Mm. That's uh, Matthew. Mm, okay. Mm. Mm. <laughs> 
Thanks, Matthew. That's the idea. So, yes, there's no such thing as casual reading. I mean, books are hugely expensive, precious items. If you had a library, you were a big, big banana. Well, that's right. Yeah. Well, the the scholar here, um, who who is, on the whole, an admirable character, there's a slight bit of piss taken out of him, but, you know. Yeah, that always is, isn't (laughs) it? That's right. But he, he would rather have... 20 bookers clad in black or red of Aristotle and his philosophy uh, yep. than anything else. Yeah. You know. yeah. Um, and that of course, <laughs> the, the idea of having 20 books of Aristotle would, would be way, be like, you know, a student buying a supercomputer. Or well, us having a first edition of Milton or yes, something, you know. Exactly, exactly. Not on the cards. No, no. no. <laughs> first edition of Milton is still less expensive than a first edition of Frankenstein. Really? Mm. Good Lord. Explain. It just shows how much culture yeah. influences. Well, anyway. it does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, he's very impressed with the inn. It's kind of offers for And we're meant to go, it's just an inn, yes, right? It's like getting to the Mac, is it cold? And going, oh, that's right, <laughs> the nugget's that's right. here. Yes. Or, or, or going to a motel and thinking, wow. Yeah. You know, look at this. Oof. There's a bed and a television. Yeah. Oof. But if you've been living in a hovel, well, exactly. <laughs> exactly, yes. I don't have to sleep with the pigs. <laughs> or pigs. <laughs> and shortly, shortly means here something like, in short, you know, cutting a long story short. When the sun was to rest, so had he spoken with them every John that it was a fellowship anon. So, uh, when the sun was at rest, in other words, sunset. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had spoken with each of them. He's obviously a very sociable chap. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can imagine <laughs> which man on the trip this guy is. <laughs> exactly. exactly. That I was one of their fellowship. Anon immediately, really. Anon means immediately. Mm. Of course, now it means, in Shakespeare's day, it means in a while. Mm. Because of this tendency of words that mean now. Soon. Yeah. To mean. To mean. Well, to mean now. Now. Now to mean in a while. Give me, give me a break, you know. Cup of coffee and a Kit Kat. No, mum did that. Mum's did that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you want it now? Yeah, we can have it now. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, Chaucer's Anon means now. Shakespeare's Anon means in a while. Shakespeare's presently means now. Our presently means in a while. Yeah, mum's did that. Presently. I'll, we'll do it presently. Yep. Which ought to mean in the present. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's the way language meaning shifts are partly to do with well, human People. nature. Yeah, it's mums. <laughs> I'm going to the grave on that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mother forward early for Teresa, so they prepared to get up early. I suppose you'd go by the cock crow, wouldn't you? There'd still be cockerels in London. Lots of domestic animals in London, you know. Mm. If you have freedom of the city of London, for example, you're entitled to drive sheep over London Bridge. That's hard because there's one bridge. I How know. Much are, you, are they forming single file? Exactly. Are you doing it early in the morning? What if there's a bunch of you that need to drive exactly. your sheep? <laughs> oh yeah, the traffic was was terrible because because there was just one. And that's bridge. why you would take a boat if you had the money. Yes. The equivalent it's of the, Uber Lux. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Do people swim? You wouldn't have swum. No, that no, would have no, been no, terrible please. to swim in. No. <laughs> and people couldn't well, swim, we established in dancing. People couldn't swim, no, exactly. It's like, yeah. yeah. Giving God the fig fuck, as we figured out. <laughs> exactly. 
Yeah, I mean, they had to introduce traffic rules for London Bridge, you know, passing on the left. Is that where? No. But, well, yeah, it's the only... American? Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. <laughs> 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 um, but, oh, to there is a your disease To take our way, make our way, as I explained to you, as I'm telling you. But, nevertheless, but nevertheless, will you have team and space? Well, I have time and space. space. Yeah. yeah, space. Leisure. Will. Everybody further in this tile pass. Before I go any longer in this, further in this tale. Methinketh it, according to Resun, methinketh it. It think literally. It thinks in me. Yeah. It's and, and we still well we, we don't say me thinks anymore, do we? It's, it's no. archaic. No, but Chaucer, uh, Shakespeare uses me thinks because you see how you're think. It's not you thinking. It's thought happening in you mm. in a weird way, mm-hmm. as though you're observing it. Okay. It's, it's well. It's, it's different, isn't it? Because we think in a very agentive way about thought. Yeah, I am thinking. I am yeah. thinking. Mm-hmm. Cogito ergo sum. Mm. Mm. But here, they thought of it impersonally, as it thinks in me. This process is going on inside my head. Well, except they didn't think you thought with your brain. They thought you thought with your heart. Mm. Mm. It's very odd, isn't it? Because to us, it seems natural. You peer out of your eyes, and your eyes are in your head. Mm. So you kind of live in your head. That's where you are. So. <laughs> and then, it, to complicate it further, me thinketh, I think, there's people who don't have an internal monologue. Yeah, well, it was What's going on in there? I don't know. <laughs> oh, you have one? Good. <laughs> I think I most imagine, scholars have to. Well, I can't imagine not. Not having one. So I think it according to raison. Reason, of course, is the modern, um, the modern reflex of raison. But it means something like... In, in rhetoric, it means something like putting things in their logical, in intelligible a, order. In accord with proper order. Yeah, is my yeah. Translation. Okay, and and, and it's particular application of the rhetoric. You know, how can I make this complicated topic most easily understood, understandable? Yeah. Yeah. If it could put this order, not for, writing a lecture. Yeah, writing a lecture, write, writing an article. You often find that. Resun. Yeah, that's good. We have a word for it now. Yes. I well, like propense. I've been using propense. Yeah. <laughs> but resun, some, I often find though it requires me to explain A before B, but also to explain B before A. Josh and I used to talk about that a lot. Yeah. How do you introduce? <laughs> yes, ideas? I know. Yeah. So, to tell you all the condition, to tell you all the. Condition that means something like kind of internal states as well as external appearance, so it's kind of like a large inclusive word. All the condition of age of so as it seemed may and see how that innocent phrase just as it as it seemed to me that is going to be really important because the question is how it seems to him mm. is not how it would seem to an yeah, intelligent, yes, an intelligent perceiver of. Who can see through bullshit? Because <laughs> most of these characters are full of bullshit. So you've got little Chaucer. You've got Chaucer the poet. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. So it's, it's rather a nice touch because it, it looks like an empty phrase. 
um, but in fact it's quite it's quite uh, resonant. And which they were, what kind of people they were, and what degree, very important, what rank. Yes. Because of course... When did the laws for clothing... Sumptuary laws? Well, um, they came in and out, I suppose, you know, periods have their own, Elizabethans mm. had their own. But there were sumptuary laws here, yes. Mm. A peasant couldn't wear silk, for example. Just what if you saved up, you know? <laughs> no. That's so mean. I suppose I you just get a nice cow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and they can what a ride that they were in. What yeah, they were dressed in. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, but it's important to think, to reflect that in this period, the orthodoxy, the ideology, even if it wasn't entirely, fully, completely believed, well, obviously. Well, the, the orthodoxy was that social rank was God-given yes. and necessary, so that the, the Lord in his castle you know, is a more worthy human being, greater in every way than the peasant toiling in his fields. And this explains why you're toiling in the fields, digging potatoes, while Lord so-and-so is sipping wine by a nice roaring fire. Which is why that scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail is so funny. Yes, that's right. <laughs> exactly. They also say knigget. Yes, yes, that's right. Do uh, so you think they know what oh, they're yes, doing? Of course. Oh. Well, Terry Jones is a, is a Chaucerian scholar. Oh, wow. Hmm. That's fun. How <laughs> <laughs> lovely. Yes. When things just get better. Exactly. You need to talk to Andrew and make sure she watches that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. How could she not watch it? Yeah. Um, and you see, and that a knicht, then will he first begin, because he is the highest ranking person on the pilgrimage. Okay. So I begin with him. It's simple logic. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing is that, you know, obviously, in a sense, the whole history of the modern world is the breakdown of this belief, and it takes a long time. And even with, you know, someone like Jane Austen, her characters are wrestling with these conundrums you know, someone like Emma wants to believe that rank is natural mm. to bolster her own position, but she also she has this kind of choose your own adventure way of explaining it depending on circumstances. So sometimes it's about money, sometimes it's about character, sometimes it's about mm. blood, mm. sometimes it's about ownership of land, um, because the whole thing is deeply in flux because of the rise of capitalism, which of course has to dispense with any notion of fixed hierarchies in terms of a kind of fluid hierarchy where you find your own level. Mm. You invent a new mousetrap and you become obscenely rich mm. and you marry the Duke's daughter and live in a fine house. <coughs> and, and so, you know, it, almost the kind of cultural history of that whole period is... Because we're still stuck with the trappings. I mean, we just had the bloody, ridiculous... Uh, the coronation. Coronation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Why all that nonsense. Yeah. So much money. And all that. I saw parts of it. Yeah. And this, you know, the sword of righteousness and the orb of I don't know rectitude or I don't know what mm. it was. And the cloak <laughs> of good taste. Only. It just exactly. It just sounded like a parody. Mm, because it is now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Parody of itself. Yeah. 
But this whole, it's been a very slow, pro, a very slow death of feudal ideas about human relations. You know, so in, in, in uh, 1776, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They say that, and of course, it's, a, it's still a startling thing to say in 1776. And I mean, you're only talking about men. Yeah, well, <laughs> and right. not all of them. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And yet, yeah, so yeah. groundbreaking. Yeah. Mm. Whereas now, it wouldn't be worth saying, I suppose. People take it as a given, but then they ignore the reality. They ignore the reality. They absolutely do. Yeah. So it's it's it's, it's a kind of a piety that nobody really pays attention to. Yeah. You know, yeah. love thy neighbour as thyself. Oh, of course, yes, but not that lot num- number twenty-three. Mm. Oh. Mm. Yes. No brown neighbours or black neighbours, thank you very much. And where your value comes from is really dependent on who you're talking to. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so subjective. Yeah. Mm. So it's a complicated business, but the emergence of the modern world. I suppose globalism now is to blame for a lot of our confusion. Well, I suppose so, yeah. It's true. It's true. But you see, even here, there are challenges. I mean, the Peasants' Revolt, interestingly, the Peasants' Revolt is in some ways quite radical, but it doesn't... It never suggests doing away with the king. Mm. You know, the king, if he knew what we were suffering, he would do something about it. <laughs> but it, it yes. <laughs> but it does suggest doing away with lords, which is quite radical. So not everybody swallows... Because the ideologies are there to bolster something that not everybody wants or believes in. Mm. If, if there's not resistance to an ideological position, there's no need for the ideological position in the first place. Yes. That's... He was, was it in the middle of March people were talking about racism? No, something else. Might have been Chomsky, actually. Never mind. <laughs> well, your reading is blurred. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry. Well, let me just if yeah, end by sure. saying, <laughs> the cha- I mean, the challenge here isn't so much from peasants, because what the point is, kind of who cares what the peasants think, <laughs> as long as they stay in their place. Yeah. They may not accept this ideology, they, and clearly the peasants' revolt showed that they didn't, Yeah. just as the Civil War uncovered all this nest of interesting beliefs about social order and so on that, mm. that had been stamped down and covered up and sat upon mm. uh, under Elizabeth and James and Charles. The people who don't really fit in, you see, the, 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 the medieval theory is that there are three kind of jobs in society. Priest, well, the, farmer? Well, no, well, the knight. Oh. The knight. Yes, the, the, the peasant who labours in the field and mm. produces the bread and those who pray. So those who, those who fight, those who labour, productively, those who pray. And indeed, you know, the three possibly most idealised portraits here, although the knight is an interesting one, we have to talk about that, Mm -hmm. because it's difficult, are the knight, the ploughman, who's very much idealised, or not idealised, but... Always, always has been, though, haven't they, farmers, yeah. Yeah. And the parson. Yeah. The parson of the village. Because most of the religious types in this poem are excoriated, if I can use that term. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Um, but, 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 this leaves out a whole ch- crucial chunk of medieval society, which is the merchants. 
because merchants don't. We had the rise of the merchant class about this time, didn't we? Yeah, absolutely. And the merchants, the merchants figure in this is the yeah. merchant himself. Sure, there is one. <laughs> yes, and because the merchant isn't. You're the plowman labors anonymously because they're a challenge to this structure. Yes, it's not productive labor. It's You're not making labor money off of other people's money and work for yourself. Yes, yes, this exactly. is the whole point in religion: the rise of capitalism and, and the denunciation of usury. Mm. Yeah, mm. yes, exactly. Tricky, tricky. So you've got this inside, inside the castle walls. You've got this subversive element, mm. and you know most, lots of medieval poets write. As though merchants didn't exist, as though you only had. Well, I mean, if you, I don't know, if you, you read Mallory or somebody, and Mallory's writing in the next century, mm. 15th century, the world is only composed of fighters, prayers, and laborers. Mm. Only, miss out of yeah, nobody's. Think of, think of Spencer, actually. They're emergency. No one's selling you yeah, bread on your way up. <laughs> no, exactly. 